Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. We are now on episode 29 and our guest today is extremely interesting and a very impassioned speaker indeed. He is called Leo Igwe and we'll be hearing about his international focus on advocacy for those accused of witchcraft later on. This week we've been contacted by one of our listeners, who's also a local artist, um, local to our area, called Laura Darling Brackenridge. She's been in touch to tell us that there is actually a statue of a woman in Dundee, because we were talking recently about the lack of statues, obviously. And the statue is is quite interesting because this is one of the things that we've talked about, that the statue isn't of a particular individual woman. It's a statue like of women to represent women that were Dundee weavers. It was created by Malcolm Robertson in, well, it was installed in 2014 in Lochie, which is an area of Dundee where a lot of mill workers used to live. That's where they came from. So it's an interesting sculpture. It's definitely worth having a look at. We'll put a link to it on the website. But it was something that was made to recognise the weavers, the women weavers of Scotland. And the statue is of a woman with a little girl standing behind her. And there's, it's like a sail on a ship. You'll see it if you have a look at it. And on there is a verse from the song, Oh Dear Me by Mary Brooksbank. And there's some lines from the poem Toast to Weavercrafts by Ron Hutchison. So the two figures that are on there, the woman is a lady called Stella Carrington. And then there's a little girl who was seven at the time called Sophia Capon. And her granny was actually a weaver, which is quite common. My granny was also a weaver. So if you're from Dundee, there tends to be a link to the women working in the mills. So it's nice to know that there is a statue there that's for that. But it is very much, it's not about one particular woman. It's definitely a case of a woman embodying, you know, like all women. So, you know, again, this goes back to what we've talked about so many times, doesn't it, Claire, about the lack of real representation for women. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fantastic. And I'm so glad that the women who worked as weavers have got that recognition. I think any statues in recognition of women are good, but it would be also good to have, along with those statues, individual statues of women who have done something in particular, just so that young people boys, girls, adults can look at them and see them for what they have done and what they have contributed to society. Yeah, and see themselves reflected. We've talked about that a few times, haven't we, how important that is. There's no, like, particularly talking about this area, there's no shortage of women role models, really, no. that could be statued no. in Dundee. I remember we talked right back at the start to Sarah and Sarah said that she wondered when she started off her project about trying to name all the different places in relation to women and she wondered whether or not there would be enough women mm-hmm. like she just didn't know if history had recorded enough and she said not only there were enough there were too many she, she was struggling to get 
all these yeah. fantastic stories of things that women had done into her book. I, mean, I remember she said, was it her motto became leave no woman behind? She was trying to get everybody. <laughs> I love that. Good, leave no woman behind. That's brilliant. But it's it's interesting because, you know, obviously women aren't necessarily going to be war heroes. And that does seem to be like one of the, the hottest tickets to getting a statue made of yourself. Yeah. So it is nice, it is nice to see that women are, are marked in that way in Dundee because women certainly, and I'm sure this is the case in most places in Scotland, but women were absolutely at the forefront of political involvement, particularly during the suffrage point of time. They were involved in the mills, as many women did across Britain. During the Second World War, they stepped up and did, you know, quote unquote, male jobs. You know, there's there have been lots of women that have been real kind of groundbreakers. So I just would like to see more of that generally. Yeah. Speaking of suffragettes, Zoe, as you know, we were down at the house recently looking at the what's called the Witch's Stone. And round that was tied the ribbon in suffragette colours. Somebody had yes. gone down there and tied that up there. Nice. I presume that's something to do with um, International Women's Day, maybe something like that. Yes. But I think um, we should just clarify for our international listeners, of which we have quite a few, what is a hauf? What is the hauf, Claire? Oh, so the hauf is the graveyard in the centre of Dundee. And I'm not quite sure. Is hauf a word for graveyard? Is it? I don't think so. Actually, I have no idea why it's called that. I should ask my gran. Certainly when I was a little girl, that's where my gran took me for entertainment. We used to go around the, the house. This is the same gran that was the mill worker. So she used to take us around the graveyards and have a look there. And it's a, it's a really, I mean, like we know that some of our listeners have got an interest in graveyards generally. And if you do and you've not listened already, go back and listen to Peter Ross's episode because his, his book's fantastic about graveyards and cemeteries. But the house is amazing. Um, it's really worth going and have a look around. Yeah, the thing that we were talking about in the house was a stone, which sort of comes up to, I don't know, just above the knee, perhaps. Is that the height of it? Maybe up to yeah, I think so. half length? Yeah, you and I are very, very tall, though, obviously being supermodels. <laughs> so maybe not on the average. One. <laughs> so it probably comes you up to... say anything you like as a podcast, Claire. We can, can. make any bold claims. <laughs> And and we'd be fine right up until the point that someone who saw us and then... And they'd be like, hang on a minute, this is a <laughs> story that you've told me. Yeah, I think probably on an average woman's height, say round about five foot six, I think it'd be just above the knee, I would yeah, say. Just above the knee. And, and it was actually a stone, speaking of the weavers, it was actually a stone where the nine trades of Dundee met. It wasn't actually a stone that was set up to remember anyone as witches or to remember women in particular, but it's just been repurposed that way. It's funny that I wonder how that sort of myth started. I wonder how it, it went from being the stone that was very, very specifically for the meeting from the trades to then being a place that was marked with like, you know, pennies, stones, shells. We've seen different bits and bobs. Vials even. We've seen small vials. Don't know what's what? I don't know. There was a vial once when I went there. Claire, that could have just been drugs that somebody left behind. <laughs> So. I think it was an offering. I think, yeah, it was It was a, a, along with the rest of the stuff. I didn't know what it was. Ooh. But now this is complete speculation. And obviously, Go for um, it. Both, both you and I enjoy the truth and the facts. But if I was to make up a story about why it was relevant, was that, that it was, the stone's been around since the 16th century. So it fits in time-wise with the allegations of witches. But also Dundee's most famous woman that was executed as a witch, Grizel Jaffrey, she was a local businesswoman. And 
as I understood it, she was a businesswoman in her own right. Like it wasn't just her husband's business that she was part of, but she was a businesswoman herself. And I just wonder if it comes from that time because she was a businesswoman and the stone was to do with the people where business folk met. I don't know. That's yeah, maybe that's, that's my made up idea. We have been talking a little bit on Twitter to a local historian who is going to talk to us at a later date about that. So maybe we can do some more digging around the issue of, of Grizel Jaffrey and where these things come from. Yes, that is uh, really interesting. I look forward to doing that with him very, very soon. And what else have we got, Zoe, this week? We've also been contacted by one of our fantastic listeners who's a great supporter called Melanie Mackin, who you may remember, well, Claire, you'll remember, sent us photographs before about different places that were connected to the campaign in different ways. So she's been in touch this week with quite a sweet story. She was saying that she hangs out with five-year-olds and does activities with them. Uh, I don't know if she's a teacher or she works in an after-school club or something like that. And she was saying that they were drawing witches and the kids were that had, I think, had brought this up themselves, they were drawing them. And she said, out of the six kids that were there, five of them said that they liked witches, but one little kid was a bit scared of witches. But then she changed her mind after the other kids were telling them all the marvellous things about witches, apparently. And then she had told them in the past, I think it was at Halloween, about the story about the witches being ale women, ale wives and about how the pointy hat was there to be seen in the in the market crowds and the idea, the different things that they had associated with that job. However, one thing that she says that she can't dissuade them from interpreting and having in their drawings is the broomstick. And when she asks, you know, to the kids, even though she's told them this repeatedly, why do witches have broomsticks? They always tell her sort of a different version and she keeps reminding them it's to sweep out the barley and it's to keep the, the brew houses clean and the kids just will not let go of the idea that the broomsticks are there expressly for them to be able to fly. So they just, they'll <laughs> accept everything else about the witches, but they will not give up the idea that broomsticks are for flying. And I don't see why not. It's, you know, as myths go, I think that's quite a cool idea. I do Absolutely. like the notion of that, being able to fly. So thanks, Melanie, for being in touch. It's great, you know, it's it's great to know that there's people that are telling children and other people as well, like about the myths and keeping on point really with the truth of the story of witches. And her, her story is very on point because in the last few weeks, there has been a few articles going around the internet about early history and women as brewers. And I would really, really love, we should really try, shout out to any early modern historian that can tell us about this. It was Sarah who told me about it, first of all, and directed me to something. And maybe we can follow up a few links with her, in fact. Um, maybe that'll be someone now. Someone just calling us now. <laughs> Is a brewery offering to do a Witches of Scotland brew? Oh, now. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> oh, now that's getting some thoughts going. Watch this space. Watch this space. Right. So we've had contact then from Melanie. So thanks for being in touch. And it's always really nice to hear from people that get in touch with different, you know, facts or things they've come across in their own research. So thanks so much for reaching out to us. And this week we have, as you've said before, Leo Igwe. He is a humanist and he is a man who set up advocacy for alleged witches in Nigeria. He is an academic who has worked throughout Africa and tries to assist people who have been alleged to have committed acts of witchcraft. Zoe, do you have some more info? 
Yeah, what we thought we'd do this week is the bit before we have the guest on to talk, we usually outline a few stories of witches just to keep coming back to this idea or accuse witches rather, to keep coming back to this idea that they were just people and to just keep humanising the names that we have um, that have come up during different research. So we thought what we'd do this week is the first person that we'd lead with is the, a story that's happening just now, unfortunately, in Liberia where there is a little girl who's been expelled from her primary school. Now, she's six, this wee girl. She's called Catherine Karma, and she lives just outside Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. On the 16th of March, she was expelled from her school, which is called Tyneseplo Education Foundation School, after being accused of having, and this is a quote, the power of the dark world and the ability to initiate other students. Now, what that means is initiate them into basically black magic and into witchcraft and working with the devil. So the school has chucked her out of, out of their building. She's not allowed to be there anymore. There's no proof, obviously, and there's nothing to say that Catherine performed any witchcraft activities. And I don't think that they've made much of a public statement other than that maybe they're investigating it further. It's really appalling. One of the things that Leo has, has suggested that people do is to get in touch with the school and say, you know, we're watching from outside, which is quite interesting. And he talks about this in the podcast, the idea of there being kind of international pressure put on people that are carrying on with this because it's not just a case of people being accused of being witches and you know that's it this is the case of people have been assaulted there have been murders people are you know like this wee girl Catherine she's going to probably lose her right to an education if it doesn't change which means then you know what does the future hold for this this child so Leo is a very interesting speaker on this so we thought we would just cover that and there will be links that you can have a look at if you want to get involved with campaigning about that in particular. But I do think it's very much worth pointing out to people that, although, of course, this is a historical campaign, this is about the women and men of Scotland that were accused of being witches. But there is a really, really pressing modern day issue with this, you know, and this isn't some just sort of idea or thought experiment. It's not just like folkloric tales. These are real things that are happening now. And there is something that people can do if they're appalled about what happened in Scotland in the past. Then this is an area in which the people can actually really get involved. So I think it's important to understand the past. But I think it's also important if you have got um, the ability to campaign about things that are happening now that you get involved with that if you can. So like I say, there'll be links. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you were to think, if you were sitting listening to this thinking, God, you know, what, what I would have done if I was there, how I would have tried to help those people, how I would have tried to do something, you can. Yeah. Because people, it's happening to people now. And the power of an email, Amnesty International showed the power of people reaching out from other countries and just saying, we don't think this is right, or we're watching, or make sure you do the right thing here, make sure that child is put back into school and given her full education can have a positive effect. So um, we have, we're both supporters of Leo's cause and he's on Facebook. As you can come to see, if you look him up on Facebook or if you Google him, he has been uh, had documentaries on the BBC, has had documentaries on HBO. They've made clear that the work he has done at personal cost to him, he has been assaulted, he has been threatened, his family have become involved in the Stramash as well when they were in his company. So the work that he does is so admirable and against difficulties and against personal hardship, he gets up every day and tries to fight for people who 
are being accused of things that they haven't done. And I really take my hat off to him. I think he is doing a tremendous job. We are delighted to welcome you to the show, Leo. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and also the campaign which you've launched in respect of the next 10 years in Nigeria? Well, thank you so much, Claire, for this opportunity to interact with you all and uh, to tell you about this very important campaign. And I want to let you know that it is not too often that I get an opportunity opportunity to explain what I am doing. That is the main focus is actually Africa, African countries and the rural communities. So I'm so delighted to have this opportunity to share my experiences with you. Well, I was born in, um, in a rural community in southeastern Nigeria. And uh, growing up, I grew up in the midst where people practice Christianity and uh, some traditional beliefs. So there were all these superstitions, fears of witchcraft, fears of people turning into birds in the night or turning into insects and um, attacking people, poisoning their food, causing ailments and death. Now, as a child, of course, you, you're meant to believe what your parents tell you or what you are told by the elders and the communities. Even though you may have doubts, you may also have to suppress it because you really want to fall in line with what others you know, believed. But I had my doubts. I had my doubts growing up because I saw palpable poverty. Many of the people feared. Uh, many of them died prematurely. Many of them died of preventable illness. Many of them were living in tattered huts and um, uh, buildings. Many of them could not even afford basics, the basics of life. So I was wondering, you know, where was this magical power you know, we are, we are, you know, how were they able to exercise any magical power? They could not heal themselves when they were sick. They could not even prevent themselves from dying. They could not even live in better apartments. Their children could not even make a lot of progress. So I was confused. And I had this suspicion that there must be something missing in the belief. Now, as I was growing up, I was sent to, uh, to the seminary, to the Catholic seminary, to be trained as a priest. And of course, when, we, when I got there, they also started telling me about another set of beliefs about Jesus Christ, about how Jesus Christ was everywhere and was capable of also saving people, how the devil, the demons, we are all everywhere, also trying to tempt people, kill people, harm people, cause ailments. So my confusion wasn't, you know, so as I was growing up. And um, my suspicion was that either all these were just different narratives of falsehood, or there must be something wrong somewhere. So as I continued the seminary training at a stage, I started studying philosophy, which also helped me to read about, uh, not only about the local situation, but about the international situation, the witch hunt in Europe. And I was like, oh, even there was something like this that happened you know, outside my continent. And also outside, and within the continent of the people that we are told, oh, everything is perfect in their place, you know, because Jesus came from their place, Virgin Mary looks like them, and it was all good. So 
there was also this idea that, you know, this kind of dissonance I was having with me as to, okay, but why is it that also, they also have their own experience of witch hunt? And why do also have, they have it as a historical incident, something that has happened in the past? Why did it end? And why has it continued in my own part of the world? So in the course of my studies, I continued to ask all these questions. And um, somewhere in the course of the training, I left the training, you know, training to be a priest in 1994. Then in 1996, I started the, the humanist movement. And what I made as the main campaign of the humanist movement was a campaign against witch persecution and witchcraft accusation. Then what we also know locally as ritual killing. Sometimes people believe that human body parts, they could use that to make money and do some incantations and they get rich and all that. So I made this the main pillars of my campaign. And I use that as a platform to voice out my doubts and to look into this phenomenon, this practice, this harmful practice, and um, begin to actively engage it. Now, the more I engaged it, I found out that Number one, there was, you know, there was no case, you know, in terms of what they said, the accused people did, or those who are being killed. So, you know, I got shocked at the level of atrocity, cruelty, meted out to people who are suspected, suspected of being witches. And I felt that, you know, there, there's a need for a very robust campaign. It's not just enough to condemn it and said, oh, witchcraft is superstition, you go and sleep. No, people who are persecuted, people who are killing, people who are attacking suspected witches, I felt they should be punished, yes, severely. So, but there was this kind of shield, they are shielded from punishment because they're seen as those who are self-protecting the society from the occult forces and their agents. So, it has been you know, a kind of a tug of war in terms of trying to get the society to understand that people who are killing alleged witches are murderers and that they should be made to face you know, and suffer for their crime and what they're committing. So uh, over the years, we've been issuing press releases and trying to you know, draw attention to these uh, campaigns, but I still felt that it wasn't enough. I have tried to work with international NGOs. I was also unsatisfied with what they were doing because some of them will come around here. They said, ah, but we need to respect African culture and tradition. And by so doing, they couldn't come out with, you know, the kind of force and fierceness that is needed to combat this atrocity. Now, you go to the UN agencies, they try to tell you that, yeah, they were not there to, you know, move against African cultural beliefs and religious beliefs and practices. So to be candid, I saw that there's a conspiracy, international conspiracy, you know, to, to keep this kind of injustice going on, to keep this atrocity going on. So I was unsatisfied with what international NGOs, who of course bring in the funds and dictating what they have to do and what they don't have to do. And if you go against what they want to do, they will withdraw the fund so you won't be able to do anything. So I, I, I had to go, I had also, I was unsatisfied with the UN. And of course, UN has the international global infrastructure with which they could do a lot, but they were doing little or nothing. 
they were mainly scratching the surface. So I was somehow frustrated. In fact, there were points I felt that, okay, Leo, are you going to work alone? You know, you can't work with UN, you can't work with UN agencies, international organizations, and you want to raise money. Where are you going to raise the money from? So who will support you? So, um, so this was what had delayed my campaign. This was also had delayed the activism, you know, the advocacy for alleged witches, which I launched last year. So in fact, last year, what happened was that there was, um, there was a conference in 2019 at a university. It was a conference on witchcraft beliefs. But Christian students started rioting and protesting that the, those organizing the conference were inviting witches and wizards to come and meet in the university and that they were going to move against it. And of course, they had the support of the bishops, clerics, pastors. All of them were mobilizing resources for them to frustrate an academic conference on witchcraft belief. I found it outrageous. And for me, it was like, how do they put it in English? The last straw that broke the camera's back. I said, look, I can't take this any longer. You know, they were, they were rioting, going around the campuses, pesting posters and said they didn't want the conference and they would not allow witches and wizards into the university and all that. I attended the conference and I issued a press statement calling the students to order and urging them, look, this is an opportunity to understand. It's not an opportunity for you to oppose and stop a process like this. So, and I criticized the bishops who were also from outside, a kind of inciting and mobilizing the students to stop the conference. And when I issued that statement, one of the directors of the NGOs I was working with, you know, sent me a message. He told me, he said, Leo, we are trying to work with the churches. Why are you criticizing the bishops? Yeah. So he was like opposed to my, my opposition of the letter or the protest letter I posted on the media and all that. And look, it was the only letter, the only press release that was critical of what the students were doing. Every other thing published in the media was either in support or was like something watered down and said, oh, please, let's leave this in, for the sake of peace, okay? So at that point in 2019, I told myself, say, Leo, I grew up, you grew up in this environment. I understand it. So nobody can come here and tell me, oh, Leo, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry, it is the person that doesn't know. If you know what you're talking about and you have an idea of how this could be addressed, please go, go about it the way you understand. If people support you, fine. If they don't support you, at least you will get rest assured that you have done what you think you're supposed to do. Instead of doing something to satisfy somebody, you know, either somewhere in Europe, only right inside you, you know that really you are, not, you are doing a great disservice to the whole So that was why I now came out. I said, look, there is no need hiding either as a human rights organization, as a humanist, as a whatever, women's rights. No, it is advocacy for alleged witches, period. These people who are accused of witchcraft, they are being persecuted, they are tortured, they are maltreated, and we have to come out with a clear statement and say enough is enough. That's number one. Number two, we have to get a deadline. We have to get a timeline. You know, we have to get, because the way the NGOs were going about it was also frustrating for me, okay? Because they will come to a, a small community, 
For years, I know one NGO that have been studying one community for about 10 years now. Now, within that 10 years, they're not interested in what is going on elsewhere. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to respond and all that. And you ask them, okay, but why not at least try to respond lightly to what's going on elsewhere? Why we study this? They said, no. Whatever succeeds in this small community, we now spread it. Now you spread it to here, different parts of Nigeria. Then after that, different parts of Africa. When, I, when is that going to happen? I'll be dead by the time they do this. Okay? So at the end of the day, their method has a way of not effectively addressing it, even prolonging it, and not allowing us to really be in charge. You know, you know there's a way you are on top of a game. Okay? So we were really not on top of this game. So what, what I did was like, I now came out with what I call a decade of activism. And by this decade of activism, I outlined the goal of trying to, in each country, getting a critical mass of advocates. Because what was frustrating again was that when there are witch persecutions and alleged witches are either lynched publicly, you see people surrounding them, sometimes using their cell phones to capture. Very horrific scene. What are you doing there? So now, my, my, the vision there is to have it the other way around. If there is a, anything like that, people could easily send out information, either through text messages, alert the authorities, so that such a thing could be prevented. Not something you watch and capture on cell phone and post on social media as if it's something to celebrate. No, this is something horrific. So that was why I said, we have to outline, come out with this uh, 10 year of activism, whereby we try to get all advocates in different countries to be active, to be on the lookout for any suspicious move or in terms of trying to accuse or kill any alleged witch, alert the whole world so that we could put pressure you know, on the authorities and make sure that something like that you know, does not happen. So, so this is exactly how and what informed our decade of activism against witch persecution in Africa, which we launched, that was in January last year. So you have 10 years of activism against witchcraft, 2020 to 2030. You want yeah. to build a community of people that will let you know when these allegations are happening so that things can be done about them. And you'll also yeah. raise activism by engaging with people in the community yeah. and explaining That's to them why this is wrong. Now, unfortunately, we know, and we've done a, a lot of background reading about what has happened and the horrific things that have occurred in your country. Can you tell us about, as a generality, are these more allegations that affect women and children? Or is it across the board? Or are there particular like elder members of the community? Who do these allegations affect? Allegations of witchcraft target all members of the community. Men, women, youths, children. But it is not all those who are targeted who have this label enforced on them. So the difference is not necessarily in the allegation, but in the enforcement. In other words, who are those on whom this level could easily be enforced? These are apparently those in the weaker sociocultural positions. Now, let me give you an example. In the north of Ghana, where I did my field work, 
there was a man who was accused of witchcraft. And they warned him to leave the village. But the man refused. So on a, on a particular day, some young people mobilized and they came to you know, evict the man. They wanted the man to leave by force. But all the family members came out, rallied. Everybody took whatever they could and resisted the expulsion of the man. Now, why? Men occupy a stronger position. They are seen as a breadwinner. So if anybody wants to remove a man from the community or eliminate him, a lot of people will feel threatened because that means the breadwinner will go. This is not usually the case when it comes to women. Yes. Now, and especially women who have passed the childbearing age. Yes. Women are often seen as those that the society could easily, it's easier to get rid of women than to get rid of men. So that when women are accused, you see some families who say, oh, for the sake of peace, you please go. Or if it's a single woman, the woman, the killing of the woman could easily be condoned and tolerated. Yes. So women occupy a weaker social position and they are seen as those who the level of witchcraft could easily be placed on with little or no consequences. So this is why women are targeted. Children are also targeted because they are scapegoated, especially when families face challenges. Now, the children that are targeted are sometimes children from dysfunctional homes. Children staying with their stepfather or stepmother. Children who are, they call them house helps. You know, these are relatives you bring in to your family to come and help you at certain ages, uh, maybe come and um, help a babysit or something like that. Now, these are children you don't value as much as you value your own child. So they are also weaker, culturally speaking. And these are often children that are easily accused or easily the label is placed on them. So while the accusation target witchcraft suspicion, people target all members of the population. It is easier, in quote, to force that level, to, to place the level on women and disabled people, children from stepchildren or households, because these are those in weaker sociocultural positions. And we're new and we'll share in our social media links to your Facebook site. But very recently we saw online, just this morning in fact, that there was a case of a young girl who was accused of witchcraft and you were trying to become involved in that. Can you tell us a wee bit about that? Yeah, it, is, it was just by 11.30pm yesterday. So somebody sent me a link to the case of a girl, Catherine Karma, in Liberia. So Catherine Karma is a six-year-old girl attending a school, kindergarten school, and uh, it's, um, it's alleged that uh, there were suspicion amongst the pupils or the students that she had supernatural powers. And um, the case got to the authorities and the authorities expelled the girl from the school. So they informed me yesterday and this morning, very early in the morning, I started making phone calls to get in touch, possibly with the family, with the journalists or with the school. So I issued a statement and a letter which I sent to the school. 
And I spoke with the head of the school and who told me that the case of Catherine is an ongoing case and that they will look into it this evening and review it and uh, maybe they will get back to me tomorrow that I should call and know exactly what's the decision, what they have arrived at. So what happens there is that the case of Catherine is just one out of so many. Many of these cases go unreported. So Catherine, I should say, is lucky that her case, you know, the media was able to capture it. And again, when these things happen, the case is closed. Schools don't care. There are no consequences because that is a problem with witchcraft allegations. Those who indulge, who persecute alleged witches, they do so with impunity. Nobody calls them to account. So what we are trying to do is that immediately we get, a, we get notified of these cases, we try as much as possible to put it out in the media, pressure them, and send a message that those who persecute alleged witches will be held account. And there are some people who are watching. And by so doing, we try to dissuade people from engaging in it. And also, we also try to make them understand that if, there's, if they need help, they should also contact us. So it is, um, how do you say, it's an ongoing case. And um, by tomorrow, I will have to get back to the school authorities to know exactly what happened. But I'm just being optimistic in this case, because number one, they have not harmed him. And when I spoke uh, with the school head, he sounded nervous and um, a kind of, okay, well, how did you get this information? You know, I was telling him, I read it up on the media and all that. He said, what kind of media? We are still going, we are still handling this case. We are having a meeting this evening. He was speaking nervously and all that. So I think that there's some pressure and I hope that, that something positive will come out of it and that Catherine Karma will, will, will continue her education. Six years old, what does she know? And how could one disrupt her education so early in life? So what we are trying to do is to see that Catherine gets back to school and that um, we send a message that uh, schools actually are places these fears should be dispelled. And those who entertain such fears should be educated and enlightened. Not those fears should be used to victimize students who came to school to learn. I mean, this is something I don't get it at all. So this is the message we are trying to send, and we hope that something positive will come out of uh, Catherine's case. In a case like this that's happened with little girl Catherine, is it that it's other children that make accusations? So like maybe a child might fall out with their friends and then, and then you know, then a rumour starts and, and that's how it grows? Now, it is much more deeper than that, okay? Now, there are narratives parents plant in the minds of their children. Don't collect biscuits or chocolate or, or how do you call it, cookies from other pupils. They might initiate you. These children might belong to some occult groups. So if you collect some of these things from them, they might initiate you. So parents, you know, put these narratives into their children and they come to school with it. Now, if they notice anything strange, either in the behavior of a particular pupil they easily invoke this narrative. And because this is something common amongst parents as a way to protect their children, now school authorities easily buy into it. That's exactly why they couldn't contend this. Why they allowed themselves to become an embarrassment to the world is that the adults in the school, they know about these narratives. 
And instead of managing it, like you manage everything children do, children do a lot of very funny things. They come around with very crazy beliefs and uh, notions and all that. And instead of managing them, they now manage them like adults. As they took the thing seriously because the adults are the ones who planted those narratives. Okay, so I'm trying to say that it is just beyond, you know, children coming out with an allegation and the school management going by it. No, it is actually because of the kind of orientation they receive from their families and they come to school with it. And again, this is a faith-based school. Sometimes they invite pastors to come and preach and talk to them. And they warn them sometimes against maybe being initiated and tell them about some of these narratives, which when there is kind of suspicion, everything, everybody melts away, like in this case. The school authorities could not do anything. They couldn't protect Catherine. They couldn't shield Catherine from being victimized and stigmatized. So this is how sometimes, you know, we have incidents like this. And if you didn't get involved, if there, if there wasn't somebody like you then standing up for Catherine, what would have happened to Catherine? That would be the end of her education. And I want to tell you, it is not the first time. When I was doing my field work in the north of Ghana, that was um, in 2013 and 2014, a young girl was also expelled from a school in, Ga in the north of Ghana. What happened? They said that the school captain, the student captain, kind of told her to kneel down and left her there for a very long time. So she got very angry and kind of said something like something threatening to the student and said, look, you will not use your eye to see the, and take the exam, to see the exam and take the exam at the end of your school year. Now, according to her, she just said it out of anger because the school captain was like, punished her for a very long time for just doing nothing, not doing something little or nothing. Now, look at the coincidence. As they were approaching the exam period, the school captain took ill and had some problem that made it difficult for him to see. And he now recalled that there was a girl she punished, he punished some time ago who made this kind of threat that he could be ill, you know, towards the end of, of the school year. And went and told the headmaster. The headmaster called this girl and told her to release the boy. Yes, that was the word they used, to release the boy. So from there, they started taunting this girl, made life miserable for her. She had to stop going to school because when she's going, they will be booing her, calling her a witch, a witch, release, her, release our school captain and all that. She stopped going to school. So when I intervened, I eventually went and I found out that the, the guy had a problem, I think, with the kidney or something and was really needed some serious medical attention, which the family could not afford. And uh, eventually, he went to hospital. He, he couldn't make it. The, the student captain died. So this lady now was expelled from the school. And I went to see the parents. The parents told me there was no way she could continue because of what happened, that she had to stay at home, engage in farming, and marry. And this is somebody in secondary school. So I tried. I made efforts to get some family relatives to help have at least complete secondary school. They told me that I should know what happened, that the story of what they said she did, they, were not, they, were, they won't be able to bring her into their homes without fear that, you know, because, because of what they said she did. So 
I'm just giving you an example. This one, at the end of the day, ended, her education ended there. And of course, I finished my field work and left. I don't know what's the situation right now, but she was in the village. She was taken to a village, you know, away from the incident. So my thinking is that what happened to this lady, we hope that that doesn't happen to Catherine because we are still yet to, uh, you know, hear that maybe Catherine is back to school and all that. So, and I want to say that there are many children like that whose education program, whose school program have been terminated as a result of this kind of suspicion. So what we do, like I said, is try to use these cases we are notified, moving with a lot of force, campaign, publicize, engage the school authorities. I have written to the president of Liberia, you know, George Ware. I have written to the minister of education, minister of justice, anybody I could write to. I want them, you know, make a lot of noise, as they used to say, to make sure that at least it sends a message of restraint when it comes to cases like this. The work that you're doing is fantastic to try and help these young children that are being accused of witchcraft. It is so sad to hear. And one thing that um, Leo and I talked just before we came on recording about this is the importance of campaigns highlighting the fact that these things are still happening in the world and it's not yeah. a historical issue that people mm -hmm. are being accused yes. and persecuted mm -hmm. of witchcraft but all too much the horror is that it's absolutely real and it's live and you Leo are spending every day fighting against people alleging witchcraft against other people and also trying to protect their lives because people are losing their lives as a result of this allegation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People are losing their lives in, in huge numbers. Let me tell you why I said that, because sometimes people will tell you, do you have the statistics? Now, allegations of witchcraft happen between people in stronger cultural political position against those who are weaker. So when they commit the atrocities, they suppress the statistics. So it is difficult for us to get very realistic statistics as to who are those being victimized. Like I said in the case of um, Catherine, if a journalist did not put this out in the media, we may not have known. And like I told you in the case of this girl whose own education was terminated in the north of Ghana, it was because of my field work I got to know. Otherwise, that would have been the end. And look at in Malawi. Okay, I have also visited Malawi and I have followed events there. The first time I visited Malawi, that was about 2008, I was taken to a prison where alleged witches were kept. I was shocked. I was in tears. Seeing an old woman who should be at home resting, enjoying her old age with her families, or if not with her families, enjoy her life. In prison, for what? Oh, some children came, they confessed that uh, the woman wanted to initiate them into the witchcraft world. Sometimes they claimed that they traveled in a, what they call a witch plane. They have a notion, the mythical notion of witch plane in Malawi, and that some of the, these women took, children confessed that some of the women took them in a witch plane, you know, to Zimbabwe or South Africa to initiate them into the witchcraft world and all that. And I was like, how should adults take this seriously, even if a child says this? And they say this in a law court, and a judge or a magistrate will convict somebody, an elderly woman, 
to prison sentence based on this caricature and absurd claim. I was like, no. So there is actually a legal a legal proceeding that's happening here. It's not a case of somebody is accusing somebody and then it's done sort of unofficially. This is an official thing with a judge and the legal system. Yes, in Malawi. In Malawi, Malawi right. had that. In, right. That was in, they, they, had, they had this and they convicted so many people. Now, the judges will say, based on the confession of the children and also security, that if they allow these elderly women to go back to their communities, that they will be killed by their accusers. Now, so they have to tell, sentence them to prison. And who does this? So at a time, I was told that 50 to 100 women or more, because there was no, like I said, there was no accurate statistics as the number of women who've been consigned, who've been imprisoned as a result of this. So that was when I told my, my contact person in Malawi, I said, look, we cannot allow this to continue. First of all, let's expose this, that this is what Malawi justice system is doing to elderly people. Yeah, because I was in tears when he took me to a prison place in Lilongwe and brought out a woman who didn't do anything, but based on a confession by a child, the judge sentenced the woman to prison. Yes. And today in Central African Republic, some women choose to go to prison, voluntarily to go to prison, because they felt that that is the place they could only be safe. Because if they're at home, they risk being murdered in the vigilante style or, or by the mall. Is that the no, Ghana? this is in Central African Republic, very close to Congo. Now, in Ghana, they have what they call the witch camps. Yeah. When women are accused, they, they pack their belongings and go to these places because that's the only way they will feel safe. This cannot continue. No. This, we can't continue with this. And do you know what? Yeah. It is actually explained, oh, it's Africa. It's happening in Africa. And that is why I am so enthused. I'm so excited by the campaign, you know, to have what happened in Scotland. You know, have authorities apologize, come out with a monument, and, you know, take action that really sends the message that these people were unjustly treated, unjustly accused, and unjustly convicted. So that statement of injustice, that, that statement alone is, is helpful in helping us draw the attention to the contemporary perpetration of injustices against women in Northern Ghana who are mm -hmm. languishing in makeshift camps, they call it witch camps, against women in Central African Republic who are voluntarily taking themselves to prison because that is the only place they could be safe. And against children in so many places, who are attacked and killed, and nobody comes to help them in, because the society still thinks that it is justified for them to be persecuted and treated this way. Leo, we can't thank you enough for the work that you do, the passion that you show, and the fact that you've effectively given your life to trying to help people in these situations. And we are, are delighted that we can try in any way to improve the situation for you to help people. So we are absolutely <laughs> delighted that we can, that if we get an apology or if we get a pardon, you can rely on that in order to assist you to help 
try to show what a terrible miscarriage of justice is being is happening right at the moment in the countries that you are working with. Is so, there anything that our listeners can do? I yeah. mean, are, is there anything that we can do here to spread the word with, with our listeners and other people that are involved in this area? Yeah. You see, what I always tell, what our listeners could do is, today, the world is more interconnected than it used to be. And we can use this to further the cause of justice. Yes. And I want to t- say this. It is because of that interconnectedness, I get, to un- I get to know about what is going on, this campaign going on in Scotland. Okay? And I said that, yes, at our own campaign, at a, a Advocacy for Alleged Witches, you know, we, we stand in solidarity with, you know, the Scottish campaigners, all, this, all, all that is being done to make sure that this issue is given, put at its proper place in history. So what our listeners could do is to use the same channel to draw the attention of the injustices going on. Yes, because we cannot say we have taken care of the injustice in one part of the world while we uh, close our eyes to the same kind of injustices going on in other parts of the world. No, I don't think it speaks well of us. So our, our, at all the international forums, international NGOs, international platforms, anything that can be done to highlight the voices. Because what is going on is this, like in the case of Catherine now, or in the case of the uh, alleged witches in Ghana, nobody speaks for them. Nobody wants to be their voice. Nobody wants to understand their own side of the case. People dismiss it. People localize it. They think that it is not a global issue. No, we should not localize the injustices against witches in Africa. We should globalize it. We should use all the necessary machinery in our power, all the platform we use to highlight them with the same urgency that it deserves. And send that message that whether 300 years ago or right now, anywhere in the world, any injustice against an alleged witch, you know, should be accounted for. Such there should be an apology and there should not be any ambiguity in the way we seek the redress or trying to make sure that such injustices or such an injustice is rectified. Leo, we agree with you wholly what you say. And what we will do is we will let people know about your website, let people know about your campaign and encourage people to use whatever platforms they have to, first of all, find out about what is happening elsewhere in the world and find out about the terrible miscarriages of justice that are occurring and also to use their platform to try and bring light to this and to try and make it clear that they think a terrible miscarriage of justice is also occurring. So we'll want to thank you very much, Leo, for giving up your precious time. And I know it's precious because you're doing this sort of work. And we just want to thank you very much for coming to speak to us again. We really appreciate the work that you're doing. And we hope that we'll be able to speak to you again at some point in the future. You've got a lot of years ahead of you to 2030 before the end of your campaign. So we very much hope to speak to you and hear how that campaign is going on through the years. All right, it's a pleasure. And thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We have pre-recorded loads of really exciting 
people who have come to speak to us about their interest, modern and historical, on the witchcraft trials. So we look forward to bringing that to you soon. If you are on social media, please do get in contact. We do love hearing from you. We love interacting. And please share. We would like as many people as possible to know about the Witches of Scotland. And the way that we do that is just asking you to give us some good stars on our podcast. Five stars, if you're feeling generous, we would please ask for. Because that helps the podcast get better known and spreads the word further and also if you're on social media if you're on insta do come and find us and interact with us we look forward to hearing from you so we'll see you all next week i keep saying we'll see you all you'll hear from us next week hear from us yeah that makes it slightly sound like a threat maybe that's why i'm not so keen on it yeah what should we say instead well yeah i can't think of a good way of putting it there'll be an episode next week tune in there'll be an episode next week bye bye If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.